And I really, my one of my goals is to try and get people to care about them themselves in 50 years time. Because I want you to be able to tie your shoelaces, to be able to bend over, to be able to walk and play with your kids and grandkids. And I want you to care about that now, because if you have issues with that in 50 years time, it's not from what you did that day. It's from what you did for the last, the previous 50 years of your life. So what we're doing right now is having an effect on us later on. And that's, I think, so important that people really need to start to wake up to it. What you just heard there, friends, was a snippet from Jackie Frangis Carcass. And welcome to the Euphoria Health Podcast. Howdy there, folks. It's so lovely to have you back on the show. My name is Matt Sapala, and I am your host. I'm a qualified personal trainer, and I'm currently studying a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in Nutrition. This podcast is my way of sharing a little bit about my life. I'm extremely passionate about holistic health, longevity, and sustainability. Through this platform, I aim to add value to your life by educating and inspiring you on ways to create healthful decisions each and every day. Decisions that add years to your life. I don't want to be your quick fix. I want to be your only fix. Jackie Frangis Carcass is this week's guest and she's an absolute wealth of knowledge with a plethora of formal qualifications to add to her ongoing endeavour to learn and know more. A health science degree, a master's in prosthetics and orthotics, she's a practicing nutritionist and a practicing personal trainer, she bleeds health and wellness. This is also Jackie's third time on the podcast, much to your fortune. This week, Jackie and I unpack a complex topic in insulin resistance and diabetes, both type 1 and 2. This is a condition in which it's estimated that 1.8 million people suffer from here in Australia, plus the thousands that are walking around with an undiagnosed form. Diabetes is an umbrella term for two main classifications. Type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune condition, and it is believed to be genetically inherited and type 2 diabetes, which is characterized as a lifestyle condition. The latter being positive in which we have control over the manifestation of this disease. We have control through the constant practice of health-promoting behaviors, but I won't dive into that too much. I'll leave it for Jackie to unpack in the podcast. As usual, friends, the Euphoria Health podcast is not intended to be health advice and is information of a general nature only. So please consult your healthcare professional for any personalized advice. With that being said, if you're looking for ways that you can support the podcast, the single best thing that you can do is hit subscribe on wherever you're listening to your podcast, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And if you're feeling extra giving, head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the show, just so we can share this incredible knowledge with more people within the community. Well, that's all I have for you by way of introduction, folks. I'll hand the reins over to Jackie Frangis Carcass to unpack this topic, and I'll see you all on the other side. Jackie Frangis Carcass, welcome to the Euphoria Health Podcast for your third appearance. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? I can't believe it's three already. <laughs> I know. You're churning them out. You're um, becoming a co-host, which is awesome. That's all right. I don't mind that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so so good i'm um i'm really pumped to get into this conversation today all about insulin resistance and 
specific conditions that are associated with this. But before we take a deep dive into that, you painted the best picture of where you're sitting currently in your house to record this podcast. For the listeners at home that didn't hear that pre-recording, can you give us a little rundown of where you are? I'm sitting in my wardrobe for one of two reasons, or for two of two reasons. (laughs) One, because I now have a four-month-old daughter, and if she cracks a fit, she's the furthest away from me at the moment. (laughs) <laughs> and two, apparently it's good for acoustics. I was trying to do you a favour. <laughs> so, so good. Right, I... Don't blame me. And I tried to even, I tried to even clean up behind me. Mate, like I'm a, I'm a relatively clean person, but my wardrobe, not so much. So I cleaned up behind me so Matt, so it looks like I'm a clean person, but then I just showed him the camera around the other angle and it's fucking messy. <laughs> I actually didn't show you the other side of my camera. I've got a pulled apart bed with a bed sheet right over the top of it, a clothesline in here drying some clothes. So we're equally got a, an environment that's a bit like a circus. <laughs> so, so good. Now we're in lockdown 6.0 in Melbourne. The past year has been such a crazy ride for everyone across the globe. But in particular for you, you sort of touched on it earlier. You've just giving birth to an incredible baby girl. Talk to us about how this journey into motherhood has been for you. Um, hectic, crazy. It's a whirlwind. It's really like it's the biggest roller coaster I think you can go on. Like absolutely love it, love her. But then there's been some really challenging moments too. Probably more so earlier on um, when she was really little and like trying to find your feet as a new mum, especially I'm such a busy person. I like to be doing a lot of things. I like to be challenging myself. And you've got to really sort of take a step back from yourself, especially when they're like a newborn. You've got to feed them, get them to sleep and, you know, all of that important stuff. You just, you need it literally all the time. Still need it all the time, four months in. Um, but it's just, yeah, you've got to really sort of figure out how to do it all and make sure you don't lose yourself in the process. Um, I found that probably the hardest thing because of all the things that I loved. You can't just go and train whenever you want to train. It's harder to cook what you want to cook. You know, there's just your time's taken up by someone else. And you don't, like, I don't regret it at all. absolutely love her and she's so much fun. But there's definitely challenging moments to it, which I think probably isn't said enough. Um, I actually had a moment where I lost my dad two years ago to stomach cancer and it was kind of, I had a moment where I felt the same sort of feeling when I lost my dad. I think it was a bit of grief of like my old life to, and when I realized that I think it was grief, it kind of helped because then I was able to do those things again and make sure I was doing the things that I loved and prioritizing them too, making sure that I looked after myself as well as my daughter and as well as my partner and all of those kinds of things and my two big dogs. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, you've got to really be able to pivot and adapt to a new life. Um, you know, it's not that I can't train anymore. It's that I can't train whenever I want anymore. So you've just got to figure out a new routine and that can take a while. So definitely now four months in, we've really sort of got a routine down pat. There's always every week is new. Like there's a new amazing thing that's happening and then there's a new negative thing that's happening. So you've really just got to, honestly, though, like the positive things totally outweigh the negative, like, and the the negative things are really forgotten. As soon as you hear it, like giggle for the first time or hear, or like see a crawl or grab something or these tiny little milestones, you're like, oh my God. And you forget that you were only on like two hours sleep from the night before. So no, that's what I mean. It's like such a roller coaster, but you've just got to be really adaptable and flexible to 
sort of create the life that you want. And again, every mother's different and never every mother will want her to have different goals out of their motherhood. So, yeah. Yeah, that's so incredible. And I guess just to cut this off, how have you found this journey in a global pandemic? Have you found that it sort of benefited you in terms of spending more intimate time um, during lockdown with having no sort of not having to navigate the quote unquote normal world? Yeah, it's pros and cons. Um, Good thing is like, yeah, you're not bombarded with people when you don't want to see people like that's kind of a good thing. Um, and it gives you more time to sort of settle in and get some routines happening. But I also, you know, I haven't been able to mix her with many of their babies yet. And, you know, they all have their own little babble language that they talk, talk to each other and they, I'm sure they're looking at each other and things like that. So there's that that she's missing out on that I'm sure won't affect her too much, but I think I feel sad for her. And then also there's the other thing of like, you know, I can get the routine down pat at home, but when we go back to normal life, we're going to need to figure that out again. So what it is like when we're busy and we've got things to do, how do we fit in her sleep and naps and feeds and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, pros and cons to both. I don't know. I think I'm very over it now because my life has changed so much having her and it's, you've lost that normality of seeing people and going out whenever you want. It's like a big, it's a big shift. Um, I'm really excited to get back into, you know, just to go out for a drink like go out and have a coffee, go out and, you know, do things, go swim in a pool, like things like that, um, that, yeah, I'm really excited for them to come back now. And I want her, like Lani, to be able to see people whenever she can. Like, yeah, there's those things that I'm definitely missing. I would say I'm getting over it now, but it has also had some perks throughout the process. The little things each day that we don't really shed light on, but they fill our cup and they sort of make everything worthwhile. So I'm definitely with you. I can't wait to get back to some quote unquote normal normal life. But the lessons we've learned during this have been have been incredible, and hopefully, yeah. from a health and longevity point of view, um, it makes people start to question their everyday decisions and how that impacts their their overall health. Yeah, and it goes to show that you just need people. It doesn't matter what you do, you just need people in your life. Like, this is true. Yeah, you just need relationships. That's the biggest thing, I reckon. Yeah, connections and relationships. Beautifully said. Now, Jackie, the belly of this conversation, we're going to be talking about all things insulin resistance. I think a fantastic place to start this conversation would be to explain to the listeners what happens during carbohydrate digestion and and what role insulin plays in in this. Yep, totally. So um, insulin, how do we start? Let's talk, yeah, let's talk carbs. All right, my favourite. So you eat a um, carbohydrate-rich meal, let's say, you know, a big, in our plant-based life would be like a big salad with some rice and some sweet potato and tomato and cucumber and all those beautiful vegetables and things like that. You eat a carbohydrate-rich meal, your body then will process it and break down these carbs into smaller molecules called glucose. So we literally put our food in our mouth, chew, 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 goes through our esophagus, through our stomach, gets broken down into tiny units of glucose. Um, the glucose then travels through our small intestine, goes through something called our portal vein and into our liver. From our liver, it then enters into your bloodstream. And then here is where it decides about what to do. Where am I going to go? What, what can I do as glucose inside this body that I'm in? So here it will then either be used for energy via various different tissues or it will go into storage. Now where insulin plays a role, is insulin is a hormone. It's a hormone that gets activated when glucose enters the blood. So as soon as we eat that carbohydrate-rich meal, 
And then we see those glucose units appear in the blood, your body or your pancreas is starting to produce insulin. Insulin comes from something called your beta cells inside your pancreas, and that's where it's made. So you've got all this glucose floating in the blood. The insulin goes, oh, yep, it's my turn to go. Insulin then attaches to your glucose molecules. Now, I'm one for analogies. This is my favorite. If you've listened <laughs> if you've to our past episodes, analogies. you would know that Jackie is yeah. the analogy queen. <laughs> and I was trying to think of a good one. I was like, what's one that everyone will relate to? And especially with COVID. I want you to think of insulin like your Uber Eats driver. All right. Bear with me. So insulin or the driver of Uber Eats, right, goes and picks up your food. Your food is the glucose. Insulin then drives through the streets, the streets of your bloodstream. And then goes and delivers your glucose or your food to your door. Your Uber driver then knocks on your door. So insulin knocks on the door of the cell or the door of your house and says, hey, I've got some food for you. Do you want it or not? And then you inside the cell or inside your home can choose to either go and open the door and take it and eat it or use it as energy. Or you can choose to leave it sitting outside. Because let's say, I don't know, maybe you've just eaten breakfast. You don't need food right now. So you're just going to leave it sitting outside there, floating around in blood or floating around sitting on the deck. (laughs) That makes sense. So insulin is basically like a carrier and a key to getting glucose from the blood to inside the cells or picking up the food from the restaurant, taking it to your house and inside the home. So it's a really, really, really important molecule. Uh, Insulin is really demonized by a lot of people because it's very anabolic, but it's actually a really, really good thing. We need it. We literally need it to survive. We need it to be able to break down glucose and we need it to be able to use glucose. Um, The issue lies when there is too much insulin, but we can get into that a little bit later. So then any glucose that's not used, still floating around the blood, can either go and get stored in the liver as a little substance called glucagon or it can be converted and stored as fat, ideally as adipose tissue. So that is the process. We eat food, we break it down into glucose, insulin picks it up, takes it to inside the cells, and if it's not going to go inside the cells, and goes as it gets stored either in the liver or it gets stored as fat. One of two things. And that is the process of carbohydrates. I think that's a really exciting analogy that you used about uber eats because it's really relevant in this in this COVID times and i think for the listeners at home it's a really simplified version of a of a quite in-depth process that happens within our body um but to understand the basis of the conversation that's fantastic for what what does go on inside of ourselves i think to highlight as well it's really important that the energy that is stored is stored for a later date. So it's potential energy that can be used at a later date, whether that's going for a dedicated exercise session in the afternoon or, or our day-to-day sort of movement. And I will say this, your storage in your liver and your storage in your muscles of glucose or glucagon is capped. They have a finite amount. And once we hit that capped point, once we hit that level, that's when you store the leftover as fat. So let's say you've run a marathon and you've depleted all your energy stores. You're going to need to top them up. So you can, that's why people go and, you know, eat a big carby meal after because they can go and get that in. And then it's going to pretty much be stored as I suppose, quote unquote, the good storage of glucose. And then any excess above that will get stored as fat. So that's sort of how it's decided once where we've hit our capped or our top levels, we then store it as fat. 
No, let's say insulin doesn't do its job and it leaves glucose molecules circulating in the blood. What happens when there's an excess of glucose that's left, you know, not as storage or it hasn't been used as energy? What happens if it's still circulating in the blood? Yep. So that's when things like inflammation can occur. That's when, yeah, we're going to start to put on weight because we're going to end up having it as fat. We can, this is where we start to get symptoms of diabetes arising as well. Things like you might hear diabetics before they know that they're diabetics, they are um, constantly thirsty and frequently urinating. So when your blood becomes super sugary, filled with all that glucose, your body tries to, it creates thirst because it wants you to flush it out. So then any excess there, you drink water, drink water, drink water and go and urinate it out. And that's when people can find things like ketones in their blood. They can see glucose, sorry, in their urine. Um, and in funny fun fact, back in the day, they used to diagnose diabetes by drinking urine. And if it tasted sweet, you would assume that there was glucose in the urine. Did you know that? I did not yeah, know like that. I'm talking old days, apparently. <laughs> apparently what I've been told. That's like um, some bear girl stuff right there. Yeah, doctors used to drink patients' urine. And if it was sweet tasting, they would diagnose diabetes. Um, so, I'm but so that's glad we found of, modern medicine to, um, yeah, to right. diagnose these conditions. <laughs> so that's a part of the reason why it's um, frequent thirst and frequent urination is a symptom of diabetes is because you're trying to remove those the glucose from your blood because we don't want it there. It's going to cause harm. Um, we lead to things like inflammation. We can get damage of the gut lining. There's so many things that that blood glucose can do when we have that imbalance. Your body is constantly trying to get to a state of homeostasis, which basically just means balance. So, you know, if you get hot, your body sweats and it cools down. That's a version of homeostasis. Your body is constantly trying to maintain that equilibrium and that if we sway in one end too far, that's when harm can be done. So, again, too much insulin, not a good thing. Too much glucose in the blood, not a good thing. Too much of anything, not a good thing. Not enough of anything, also not a good thing. We really want to try and achieve that balance. Yeah, really, really great thing to highlight there, Jackie. And we hear, hear these terms, insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity being thrown around. For the listeners at home, what is insulin? Firstly, what is insulin sensitivity? And then we'll, we'll take a deep dive into insulin resistance. Yeah, so insulin sensitivity is basically what like i mean what the name is you you want your body to understand that there's blood there's glucose in the blood that it can then go okay yep i've got insulin ready to go and it comes and it does its job really efficiently there's a simple way of putting it insulin resistance is when your body's working overtime and it's going wow this is too much i can't cope that it kind of shuts everything down it doesn't really shut it down but it doesn't adapt or doesn't respond to that high blood glucose level as well as what it used to it's a really simple way of putting it. And we talk about prolonged, or well, everyone has a as an element of insulin sensitivity because that's how their the cells work, like you just highlighted before. But we talk yep. about prolonged insulin sensitive uh, insulin resistance, I should say. What happens when we've got a, a prolonged period of time where our, our insulin cells are, are resistant to detecting the glucose that's floating around in our blood? So that's when we lead to diabetes. I suppose we should probably talk about really the mechanism behind insulin resistance, do you think? Love it. <laughs> yeah, listeners can understand. So forever carbs, again, have been demonized in this process. 
what I need you guys to understand is that we see, so let's talk about insulin resistance. We see high blood glucose levels in the blood. If you're a diabetic, you'll test your levels and you'll have high sugar in your blood or high blood glucose. And people go, oh crap, carbs must be the problem. Not quite the case. So this is more of a symptom than it is a cause. What really happens with insulin resistance is we need to look at what's going on inside of the cell. So when we eat foods that are really high in fat, you're eating fat as a substance called triglyceride, which is basically glycerol with um, three fatty acids attached to it. This goes into your small intestine. The glycerol backbone is removed and then you have the fatty acids floating around in the blood. The fatty acids travel through the wall of the intestine into your lymph system, which is basically like or kind of like a circulation system. It then travels into the blood as something called chylomicrons, which is just basically like a package. Picture that I've grabbed a fat molecule and I've packaged it up in a little parcel and then I'm going to deliver it to the tissues where it needs to go. Now, if 100% of these fatty acids ended up as fat tissues, then diabetes wouldn't exist. If they ended up in adipose tissue, that's great. That's where we want them to go. They're designed to go there. However, when what the issue is, is when these fat deposits end up inside of our muscle and inside of our liver from, again, eating too much total fat in our diet. All right, it doesn't come down to sugar per se. It comes down to our total fat. Sugar only really becomes an issue or glucose. Sugar and glucose become an issue when we eat too much food. So when we're out of that calorie balance and eating into too much of a calorie surplus for a long amount of time is when we're going to get fat storage from glucose. That occurs via a process called de novo lipogenesis. Yeah, so it's all it's when we eat too much sugar in when we have too many calories, sugar becomes an issue. But at the end of the day, it comes down to fat and total fat in our diet. Now, what the fat does is if we're looking inside the cell, it creates what's called, it creates your lipid droplets to grow. So lipid droplets occur in every single cell, right? And they grow over a course of time when we eat high fat foods. These lipid droplets get bigger and bigger and bigger and they swell up inside of the cell. And then they stop that insulin signaling process from occurring. So again, taking it back to that Uber Eats analogy, picture your Uber driver has knocked at the door or insulin has knocked at the door of the cell and said, hey, I've got glucose for you to take in. Let's say you want the glucose, you want to go and use it, you want to bring it inside, you want to bring your food inside because you're hungry, but all of a sudden your house starts filling up with water, right? Starts filling up with water. All those processes that it takes for you to get to the door to bring that food inside, get up off the couch start taking steps one by one, going to open the door, they're all inhibited because all of a sudden you've got all this water filled up, right? It's a, it's a barrier. So all the processes that go on inside the cell that allow insulin to open the door or open through the cell wall to let glucose in become inhibited. And that is the true mechanism behind insulin resistance. It's the growth of lipid droplets from too much total fat in the diet that inhibits our insulin signaling pathways that we can't open the door anymore to let glucose inside. So instead of having glucose sitting inside the cell, it stays outside in our blood. Or picture you keep getting all these Uber Eats deliveries to your door and then just keep going on your front porch. 
they build up, they build up, they build up. You've got all this glucose or food sitting at your front door. What's going to happen? It's going to go off. It's going to go moldy. You might get rats. You have all these flow on processes that occur that are negative and gross. (laughs) They're not good for anyone, right? They're not good for the environment. They're not good for you. They're not good for the house the uh, negative impacts of having this buildup of glucose or food outside your door or outside your cell in the blood. Does that make sense? Definitely. I think I want to zoom in a little bit on the type of lipids that we are consuming or the type of fats. Like all fats aren't created equal in that point of view, is it? It's more of zooming on on the positive and negative sorts of fatty acids that we consume. Are you in particular talking about saturated and trans fats when you talk about this? Totally. Yeah. So it's definitely worsened with um, saturated and trans fats. Trans fats, you need 0% of trans fats in your diet. Nobody needs them. It's a fat literally made up by humans. We don't need to consume this fat for our life at all. Saturated fat, I find really, from what I read in the science, personally, I find it has really no benefit. I don't think it's an essential as such. However, if we're looking at the guidelines, the national guidelines, no more than 10% of your total fat should come from saturated fats. Saturated fats can be inflammatory. They can drive up your cholesterol levels, all those kinds of things that we don't want. And they also allow those liquid droplets to swell. However, I do have to say at the end of the day, it comes down to total fat intake that is going to increase that lipid droplet size. The issue is when we're eating saturated and trans fats, we also have those extra things added on top. You're not getting, you know, the fiber, you're not getting the phytochemicals and nutrients of vitamins and minerals you're getting the inflammation and all of those negative things that come with the saturated fat. Things like um, AGEs as well that cause inflammation in the body that are generally attached to things like meat, which are high in saturated fats. Again, I'm not here to demonize meat. Not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm here to say that they can contribute to this whole increase of the lipid droplet um, and therefore insulin. Sorry, um, insulin resistance. Um, But yeah, so at the end of the day, it is total fat. So if you're having a diet that is, you know, a keto diet, say, that's something that's more so like 90% fat, um, you are, even if you ate all good fats, you're going to not see as much of an increase as you would if you're eating trans and saturated fats, but you will see an increase in that lipid droplet size because it does come down to total fat that you're eating. That's where I think it's really important that we have a balanced approach between all macronutrients within our within our diet. And that doesn't have to be at a an every meal or an every plate size point of view. It's an overall daily consumption of these balanced macronutrients. Yeah, totally. And in fact, um, with diabetics that I've worked with personally, and this is a part of the science too, because of the way carbohydrate metabolism or you know, getting to glucose and having that whole process occur. And because of the way fat metabolism occurs for breaking down fats for energy, they kind of can't occur at the same time. It's really hard for the body to manage that because they're two different processes. Breaking down carbohydrates is really efficient for the body. Glucose is our number one fuel source. It's the only fuel source for our red blood cells. It's your brain's number one fuel source as well. Um, That's a much more quicker and efficient process. Breaking down fats is a lot harder. It takes a lot longer. Right? It's kind of like our backup generator when it comes to energy. We want to be mainly burning through glucose because that's efficient and then having that fat as sort of like a backup. You still need it, but it's not as prioritized as glucose. Um, but they they kind of, they don't compete, but they it's hard for the body to do them at the same time so that when we eat fat, 
and carbohydrates together in really high amounts, it's really hard for our body to process. And that's when diabetics can get a really big spike in their insulin is when they're having a really high fatty food and a really high carby food. Like let's look at, say, a pizza. You've got the carbohydrate base and normally it's stacked on with meat and salami and cheese and all of that stuff. So it's actually quite a high-fat meal too, even though people look at pizza as a carby meal. And something like that is just nightmare for diabetics. Yeah, it's not so, about isolating the nutrient itself. It's about looking what the the macronutrient is packaged in with as well. Exactly. And like you look at all the foods that come in nature, like look at all your carbohydrate foods. Let's look at carrots. Let's look at, um, you know, even a nice piece of toast, like from whole grain, um, a whole grain piece of toast. How much fat do you think in that? Not much. When food comes as nature, it's generally a high carb food or it's a higher fat food. You know, and that's where, again, that's where quality of fats makes a huge difference in particular for diabetics or people with insulin resistance problems. Again, I've worked with diabetics before and we've switched it up. We've gone, let's say, a nice big bowl of whole grain rolled oats and we've put in some chia seeds and some flax meal. That works beautifully for their blood sugars because, again, it's that high omega-3s, the anti-inflammatory fats that they don't get that huge spike in their glucose compared to say if they had, you know, a piece of white bread smothered in, I don't know, Nutella and God knows what cream. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think the, the word carbohydrate has grown to be demonized because it's a spectrum, right? Like a jelly bean is a form of carbohydrate and also a carrot or a piece of whole grain sourdough is a carbohydrate too. But their nutrient value is not equal and the way our body metabolizes it on and extracts nutrients is is not the same at all so understanding mm-hmm. the quality of your nutrients is is also really really important and it's a big factor of the work that both you and I do yeah as i always say to my clients carbohydrates is such a big umbrella term carbohydrates means fruit and it also means fruit loops so which one do you think you're going to pick you know, it's pretty, and I think we need to try to bring some clarity to the diet culture and the world that's out now that it's health isn't that hard, right? When we strip it right back, people know what healthy food is. They know that they need to eat their fruits and their vegetables and their whole grains and all those kinds of things. You get confusion when marketing is thrown in. And also you've got to look at, especially with, you know, diabetics, there's always a psychological component. That's the one thing that I think tends to get ignored. Um, and when you're working with diabetic patients, I've worked with diabetic patients from a nutritionist point of view and from a very far end diabetic point of view when I worked in my old career in prosthetics when we're talking about amputations. Um, diabetes is the number one cause of amputation in the Western world. So I've worked with people that are on their, you know, the end of their diabetic journey, quote unquote, um, and they're at that very long-term diabetes case and they've lost so far that they've lost a leg from it. There is so much psychology behind how they've gotten themselves there because everyone knows what healthy food is, but people still choose to eat in an unhealthy way that doesn't serve their body. And it goes back to much, much deeper issues than just the food and health itself. That's one thing I think that needs to be brought to light, that if you are a diabetic or if you've got insulin-resistant problems, that, um, you know, take a look at 
your mind and what's going on there too and is that inhibiting your health as well physically do you need to get help there from a psychologist can you work with a nutritionist who can help you in that way do you have a friend that can help you you know is that something that needs to not be ignored as well definitely and I think just to um, reiterate that point there Jackie that these conditions or in particular diabetes if we zoom on that that doesn't happen overnight that is a, a compounding condition that has been happening for five ten years of yeah. of various unhealthy habits etc and and genetic components and whatnot but to sit there and think that that's going to be reversed in in four weeks is is ludicrous we need to actually do the work both you know physically mentally nutritionally to reverse these types of conditions or get them to a point where they're manageable yeah these things don't happen overnight you know most of these lifestyle diseases that we're talking about heart disease doesn't happen overnight cancer is a bit harder but more often than not doesn't really happen overnight it's from long-term effects of what you've been doing and I forget who the study was done by but a huge study was done in it looked at the factors that contributed towards disease things like exercise nutrition smoking mental health, all of those things. And nutrition was a number one factor as to why people got lifestyle diseases. I did Which some people just blow, yeah, some people just blow food out the door and it's just like it doesn't matter. But like food, if we didn't eat food, we would die. That's how important food is. And I think, I don't know if I've mentioned this before in a podcast, but food is so accessible now. There's so many different types of food. Food is manufactured. You know, we don't have to fight for our food like Hunter and Gatherer used to do, that it just has become like kind of like a null thing. But it's actually so important. Food is what fuels us. It is the petrol to the car. If you put Pepsi Max in your car, it's not going to run. Yeah, even though it's diet, I don't care. It's not going to make your car go. You need petrol. Yeah, same thing for food. Food is so crucial and it's the reason why our body works the way it does. So we need to really, really be be looking at that as an important factor definitely you did mention that in our previous podcast but you used the ferrari this time so love the analogies i do, <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to say too i was looking at some statistics on diabetes in particular being insulin resistant podcast and here's some fun facts for australia so currently so at 2018 this was 1.2 million for five percent of the population had diabetes it's predicted that um, by 2025, so only a seven-year difference, over 3 million people over the age of 25 will have diabetes. So that's over double in only seven years. Seven years is not a long time. And we're looking at, you know, population data like that. And that's over double people will have diabetes, which is massive. It's diabetes is the leading cause of blindness. As I said, it's the leading cause of amputation, and I've worked firsthand with that. And that's a really, really scary place to be in because amputation isn't the only thing going on. You've got peripheral arterial disease, you've got retinopathy, you've got, um, God, what else do you have? You have vascular, I've already said that, and you've got vascular disease, you've got neuropathies, you've got all things that are wrong with you. Um, so many comorbidities going on. You're two to, um, two to four times more likely to develop heart disease if you've got diabetes. Over 300,000 people living with diabetes have kidney disease. It's such a systemic effect on the body um, that people don't realise. Like it's such a, yeah, I've got diabetes, but I think people don't know the real flow and effect it has because, again, it comes down to the way we metabolise our food 
and our food is what runs our body. So if you've got a problem with the way we break down our fuel, you're going to have a problem all over the body. And it's that manifestation over years and years and years that causes this. This is, this is what gets me, you know, being 28 myself and working with, you know, a lot of young clients or being on Instagram where it's filled with young people, all they care about is their six pack. And I really, my, one of my goals is to try and get people to care about them themselves in 50 years time, because I want you to be able to tie your shoelaces, to be able to bend over, to be able to walk and play with your kids and grandkids. And I want you to care about that now, because if you have issues with that in 50 years time, it's not from what you did that day. It's from what you did for the last, the previous 50 years of your life. So what we're doing right now is having an effect on us later on. And that's, I think, so important that people really need to start to wake up to it. Definitely. Beautifully said, Jackie. Now, zooming back in on the statistics that you just shared with us, I think it's a great segue into the topic of diabetes. Out of the 1.2 million people, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, that are already diagnosed with diabetes, did that distinguish between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And I guess this is a... It did. I think it was something, I think 10, I think it was... 10 to 15% might be type 1 of that 1.2 million. Um, and I think, yeah, that it was like 80%, of, around 80% of that was type 2. So a huge yeah. portion of the pie. And I guess furthering on that, that conversation as well, for people that are not familiar with the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, um, type 2 diabetes is a, is a lifestyle disease and type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is more inherently gen- genetically inherited, I should say. For the listeners at home, can you give us a brief overview of what they both are? Yep. So type 1 diabetes um, is really, it's an autoimmune condition. Uh, it's a strong autoimmune condition. What basically happens is you have multiple antibodies, which are proteins inside the body, that attack the beta cells in the pancreas. So that autoimmune response basically means our immune system, so like our army that sits inside of our body and fights disease, ends up fighting your own tissues. So it combats the pancreas, it destroys those beta cells inside, and it's a really rapid destruction. And generally within 12 to 18 months of this occurring, you'll find that you've got insulin resistance and you'll be diagnosed with type um, 1 diabetes. This is normally seen between birth and 30 years old tends to be more common in younger years of life, but I definitely do know some people who have been diagnosed, you know, in their mid to late 20s with type 1 diabetes. Um, and it can be quite scary. People tend to black out. They lose a lot of weight. They have um, the, you know, sweats, the frequent urination, dehydration, all those kinds of things. And you can actually end up into something called diabe- um, diabetic ketosis. Oh, what's, what's it called? DKA. Ketoacidosis. Right, like, ketoacidosis. Thank you. <laughs> Um, I'll blame mum brain there, <laughs> yeah. um, which can actually be life-threatening. Basically, your whole body becomes really acidic and it can break things. It can ruin your organs. Oh, God, that was so not scientific and professional. <laughs> it can ruin your organs. <laughs> so that's type 1 diabetes. And then we can also see a type 1.5, which is an autoimmune condition, but happens in people that are above the age of 30. It's a slow progressing adult onset diabetes. Um, it's generally only, you only really have one antibody that attacks the beta cells in the pancreas. So it's a slower progressive autoimmune condition, which is type 1.5. And then you've got pre-diabetes. So this is when insulin resistance can first set in. It is the quote unquote diabetes before type 2 diabetes. 
It's what progresses you to diabetes. Um, this is when you'll go and get uh, your glucose testing done. Um, you'll get a diagnosis of pre-diabetes, which basically means that you sort of lie not quiet at the diabetic diagnosis, but you're too high to be in the normal range. Um, and this is when your pancreas will be working in overtime. You'll see a really high insulin reading. And that's because your body's trying to kick in because there's so much glucose floating around that your body is trying to push insulin, push insulin to go and get that glucose from the blood to inside the cell. Remember, it's the Uber driver grabbing it from the blood, putting it inside the cell, knocking on the door. Um, so this is when we really want to, you know, if you're going to get diabetes, you want to be found here. You want to be found at this pre-diabetic state because it's a whole lot easier to reverse. Um, we need much less work to be done, like that famous saying, what is it, an ounce of prevention and a pound of cure. You know, it takes a lot much, a lot harder work to try and cure something than it does to prevent it. So this is when we really want to be honing in. And the sad thing is that there would be, I think, I don't know the statistic here, but I know there's a high number of people walking around with pre-diabetes and they don't even know it. So I think this is where people need to be highlighted more. And, you know, even like, look, if you're above the age of now, 45, I would probably say, go and get your routine bloods done. Check your insulin, check your blood, um, blood glucose, check your HbA1c, go to your doctor and tell them that you want that done. You're just looking after your health and then go then. Even because earlier, I'd say, Jackie, because they're starting to see a lot of the sort of pre-diabetes stages in, in young children in adolescence so yeah. like it's, it's, it's getting it's it's crazy it used to be known as adult onset diabetes and now kids are getting it crazy kids have diabetes at the age of 10 like that is how nuts it is and as a parent that really angers me once again i think there needs there's a huge psychological component here but, you know, so many, so many parents would say, I would die for my children. I would do whatever I needed to do for my children. But would you change your lifestyle for your child? Because for some reason that seems really hard for some people. And, again, there's, it's, you know, there's a lot of things going on in that scenario. But as parents, I think we have a huge responsibility to feed our child healthy food, have it play outside, do fun activities. And, you know, you can make healthy food fun. It doesn't have to be boring. Um, but I think that's a huge responsibility as a parent that people need to have and realise that how much they're impacting their child because childhood obesity rates are rising. I think one in four children are obese or overweight, which is crazy. A quarter, a quarter of children are obese or overweight. That's huge. Yeah. There's a lot um, of moving parts to, to yeah. this whole discussion, isn't there? Careful. I don't mean that to be insensitive to parents. No, but, absolutely. Um, it's yeah, but I think it's, it's an alarming like, statistic, isn't it, Jackie? And we all have the ability to change, whether that's, you know, mm-hmm. from a legislative point of view, being having caps on marketing and how we advertise our, yeah. our foods, mm-hmm. what we promote healthy, you know. But we as humans have the ability to vote with our dollar and we all know what is health promoting foods where are we eating whole foods majority of the time we're moving our body so there's definitely a lot of moving parts but there's also elements of control that we do do have over this yeah and you know your kids don't earn money they're not the ones buying the food so when i say you know childhood obesity is something that really gets to me um because it's not the poor child's fault And we have, yeah, we have a huge influence there. And yeah, again, education around what foods can be bought that are cheap, because I understand that sometimes cost can be a huge play into that. 
Um, but you can definitely eat healthy from a cheap, like from a um, monetary perspective. Um, healthy food doesn't have to be expensive. You don't have to buy all the fancy packeted superfood, quote unquote. Every food to me is superfood, every healthy food. <laughs> and I also think, again, I wanted to bring this up today, is that's where moderation is also blown out of proportion. Because, yes, I'm all for, you know, go to a birthday party, let your kid splurge on lollies and chocolate and cake. Of course, totally. But moderation, I think, is used too much as an excuse. Moderation is good for, I think, healthy things. You know, um, if you were to only eat a bag of carrots every day, that's not healthy. Everything in moderation. You need to also eat some whole grains. You need to eat some different vegetables. You need to eat some fruit. If you were to sit and study all day, that's a good thing, but you want to do that in moderation. You also want to get outside. You also want to eat. You also want to sleep. But we shouldn't be using it for the unhealthy things. I think you should live majority of your life in a healthy way and then have a little bit of the quote-unquote bad stuff. Um, people use everything in moderation as an excuse, but it's not. You know, we need to be really, really careful there as well. Moderation is relative to everyone's mm. own discretion. You know, you can I can moderately yeah. have something and you can moderately have something. Um, yeah, so there definitely needs to be um, a, a basis of 80% of doing these health-promoting things. When we're talking for, about health and longevity, every, you know, 80% of the time if we're doing these things that are health-promoting, eating whole grains, moving our body, um, eating whole food, sorry, moving our body majority of the time, allowing time to, you know, rest, sleep, drink enough water, all of these things 80% of, 80 of the time, the other 20% isn't going to have as big of an impact. It's when we switch the, no, exactly. the factor around and do the, the un-quote-unquote unhealthy lifestyle habits 80% of the time and the, and the quote-unquote good stuff 20% of the time. That's when we see disease start to arise. Yeah, and that's when self-reflection comes in too. You know, look at your week, look at your day. What have you been doing? What have you been up to? How are you feeling? Tap into your body's way of communicating because it's always saying something to you. You know, how are you feeling? How's your mental health? Are you not feeling that great? Well, what have you been eating? Oh, I've been eating shit all week. Okay, maybe I need to start to get some, you know, just a piece of fruit in a day. You know, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here is sort of have some reflection and make sure that you are hitting those basics of nutrition, basics of health physically to then, you know, it'll manifest itself in other ways. Beautiful. Now, said. Type 2 diabetes? Yes. <laughs> a little bit of a tangent, but I love it. Type 2 diabetes. Um, yeah, so type 2 diabetes is when basically pre-diabetes has progressed itself. You are now insulin resistant. Yep, so your body's ability to create insulin is reduced your body's ability to produce those insulin receptors on the cells and go and actually open that door to let insulin in is reduced. It's impaired in some cells. It's even not working. Um, we then have glucose floating around in the blood and we have that really sugary blood levels. Um, our insulin has gone from, our pancreas has gone from trying to push as much insulin as it can to now pretty much having it all of its levels fallen. Basically, you end up producing about only 50 to 60% of the amount of insulin that you should um, rather than having the optimal levels for the amount of glucose that's in the blood. And this is what diabetes is. Your body's ability to make insulin and to recept to insulin is impaired. And you have fat storage going on. You have your body weight increasing you have inflammation increasing, cancer can be manifesting, heart disease can be manifesting, kidney disease, blindness, all those things occurring 
that lead to a really, really unhealthy picture. Um, then we've also got a new diagnosis, which I don't know if it's really an official diagnosis yet, but type 3 diabetes, which is basically a diabetes of the brain and linking to Alzheimer's, which we can talk about a little bit later. And then you've also got your gestational diabetes. Um, this is diabetes through pregnancy. We're still sort of unknown as to why this happens, but things like hormonal changes, increasing of weight through pregnancy, having too much of a weight increase, um, all those things can have an impact on our blood sugar and our um, body's ability to make insulin. So that's sort of still unknown as to why that happens, but they're basically all the types of diabetes we have, the 1, the 1.5, the pre-diabetes, the type 2, the gestational and the type 3. So there's a lot of different terms. <laughs> Thank you so much for going through all of those. I think that's really relevant to understand the spectrum of diabetes and how we can have an intervention at each point in time. And it's like our body's knocking on the door at each interval, like, you know, yeah. sort me out, help me out here. And then you get from insulin resistance or pre-diabetes to type 2 diabetes. And then yeah, that's like their, their breeding ground for other chronic diseases that follow on from that. I want to zoom in on type 2 diabetes in particular and, and talk a little bit about the diagnostic techniques and how this is diagnosed to be type 2 diabetes, what tests are, are done. Yeah, so you have to go to your doctor and get some blood tests done. Um, that's the main way that they're going to look at it. So you've got your fasting blood glucose. You've got your HbA1c. You've got your oral glucose tolerance test, and this one's not really standard, but it's one that I like to look at as a nutritionist is your fasting insulin as well, because insulin is what's going to be impaired. As I said, in that pre-diabetic state, we're going to see high levels of insulin in the blood. Um, but doctors don't really look at that one. They more so look at the top three. Um, so for our fasting blood glucose test, anything above 7.0 is when we're diagnosed with diabetes. Your HbA1c, uh, which is basically hemoglobin that attaches to sugar in the blood, right? So a protein that attaches to sugar in the blood. It's like a three-month average of our blood glucose. Anything that's greater than or equal to 6.5%, again, you'll be diagnosed with diabetes. And then you've got your oral glucose tolerance test. So this is one that in particular is done in pregnancy at around 26 to 28 weeks. Um, you drink a sh big sugary drink and then they watch your blood levels across a few hours and they see what's happening to your blood and your glucose. Uh, it's a debatable test in my eyes. <laughs> it's a bit unrealistic to me. Um, and especially if you're pregnant and doing this, just know that it's not, um, there should be steps before this. You should have blood tests done to see your HbA1c and your fasting blood glucose. Then from there, if it's indicated, you should go and do your oral glucose tolerance test. I know some people just get shipped off to do their, their glucose test and they haven't had a blood test yet. So you can ask to get your blood test done first and it, it generally is done before you go and do the glucose test because that big sugary drink apparently is awful. I haven't done it before, but I've heard a lot of people say how gross it can be. <laughs> yeah, I was actually chatting to one of my, a little bit off topic, I was chatting to one of my personal training clients about this and she's like, oh, I just had it done. It is awful, awful. I'm just yeah, like... I trying to describe it as uh, like a, a syrup of glucose. It's like you put four tablespoons of sugar, a tiny bit of water, and then consumed it. Like, ugh. Yeah, I think it's something like 75 grams of glucose, which is yeah. a lot. Crazy. Like a banana. What is, oh, I don't even know what a banana has. About 20. So that's, 
Yeah, yeah, God. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. Now, I think knowing all of how this um, manifests within the body, how type 2 diabetes manifests, it is natural to blame carbohydrates for this manifestation. We spoke about this briefly before. And I guess from if you're looking at from a test point of view, managing your type 2 diabetes, you would take the, the finger prick test, which is sort of like an at-home managing test that you would check your blood sugar levels after each meal. If you're managing these tests at home, it's natural for you to see your blood sugars rising after having a meal that's filled with carbohydrates. So if you're looking at that alone, it's not, it's almost, you've got the answer. Let's just not eat carbohydrates and not see our blood sugar rise. But in actual fact, why is this the sort of wrong method to to approach this whole situation. And, and we spoke about the types of carbohydrates before. We need to actually look bigger than the carbohydrates issue. It's the type and, and the frequency and, and all this that we spoke about before. Definitely. So there's a few sort of things to touch on here. So you've got to remember that the rise in blood glucose. So number one, it is a natural thing. You eat carbs, they break down into glucose. You're going to see glucose in the blood. That's a, that's a good thing. We want to see that. Yeah. It's when it doesn't come back down. When it doesn't come back down because we don't have the insulin to draw it into the cells and it floats in the blood is that's when that's when we have an issue. Now, a high blood glucose is simply, as I said before, it's a symptom of insulin resistance. It is not the cause. So for you to just take carbs out of the diet, there's lots of, sorry, I don't mean to be bad GPs because not all GPs are bad. But a lot of GPs will say, let's go on a keto diet. Let's just go on low carb. We'll take the carbs out and then you'll see a decrease in your blood glucose. That's like slapping on a giant, huge Band-Aid to diabetes. It's not going to work. You know, that's like saying, oh, when I train in the gym, I get sore. So I'm just not going to train anymore. It's not doing anyone any good. And you're just taking away that little stimulus that causes it. It's a symptom, right? It's not actually fixing the problem. So as I said before, it's total fat, it's poor quality fats, it's poor quality carbohydrates and eating too much as well that is the cause of the insulin resistance. In order to combat insulin resistance, you need to continue to challenge your body. You need to challenge your liver. Just like, again, going back to the gym, you go into the gym, you push your weight, you know, an extra two kilos this week because you want to grow some more, you need to challenge your body to be able to react to the stimulus that's coming inside. If you don't eat carbs or you really, really, really reduce carbs, your body's not going to know how to process them. It's going to forget. Oh, shit, I haven't done this in 20 years. How the hell do I break down a carb? I've forgotten. So you're going to see a huge spike in your blood glucose. Again, that's not what the cause is. That is simply the symptom. If you really, really, truly want to... You really, really, truly, sorry. If you really, really, truly want to fix um, insulin resistance, you need to be introducing those quality whole grain carbohydrates, those fruits, those nuts, those seeds, legumes, all of that sort of stuff into your diet so your body can learn how to react to it. And I think the ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate approach, a significantly low carbohydrate approach, it works if you can adhere to that for the rest of your life and not have any instances of carbohydrates. But we know that from a practical point of view, it's just not possible to be able to do that. Yeah, like and, you know, as you said, it, it works if that's what you're going to do. But what, do you, what, what are you taking out when you do that, right? If you're eating a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet, 
you're stripping out the whole grains, you're stripping out the fruits, you're stripping out the legumes, you're stripping out the vegetables. They're all high carbohydrate foods. So basically you're left with what? Meat, cream, cheese, dairy stuff, ice cream. <laughs> like maybe you might have some chia seeds and avocado, but you know, they're how are you gonna hit all your calories in a day? You need to eat those high calorie foods. So when you're eating this low-carbohydrate food, you're actually taking out a lot of these healthful foods that we know that are proven time and time again in years and years and years and decades of science to be healthful for the body. So that's where it is really, really scary when I see diabetics be recommended or even trying a keto diet. And look, I don't blame them and I don't sort of blame doctors because they do produce results if we're talking about the diabetic and insulin resistant thing, right? You go and you'll take away carbohydrates and because you're not eating any glucose, you're not going to have high blood glucose. It's just not going to occur. Um, initially, you know, your cholesterol will drop, your glucose goes down, your weight might even go down. Um, on paper, these things look great. However, it's a short-term result. It's basically a short-term pain, for sorry, short-term gain for long-term pain. And, you know, the studies of ketogenic diets are now, we're now starting to see some longer studies coming out and contributing to things like heart disease. And we're having, yeah, we're not getting those whole grains in, but it's a really, really, really harmful thing to be doing long term. So, yeah, it's great, you know, if you can maintain it long term, that's great from an insulin resistance perspective, but from a total health perspective, you're going to be doing a lot of damage to your body. I agree. And when we zoom in on single nutrients or isolate any one sort of condition, whether that's, you know, from treatment, that's when we start to, to really have a have tunnel vision on what's going to fix this issue, but we're not looking at, at what's happening beyond that. And I think we see that a lot with the health and fitness or the personal training and the, and the fitness industry at the moment. Everyone's, you know, so focused on calories and how we're looking, but we're not zooming out and having a a uh, holistic view of what's happening to the person as a whole 10 years down the times, 10 years and down the track, health, I should say. Yeah, as a health professional, you've got to, and you know, as much as I'm a PT personally, but as much as, you know, PTs are great, they're not technically health professionals. <laughs> you know, you really need to be knowing your lane and sticking in your lane. And it's part of the reason why I went to go study nutrition. Um, but we need to be really careful with what we're saying to people. Um, you know, even let's going back to the keto, there's been studies to show that when we're eating high fat foods and high fat diets, you get an increased cholesterol in your blood long term. Your beta cells in your pancreas uh, end up storing a lot of fat. They don't have a good antioxidant defense against that. So they eventually store so much fat that they can undergo apoptosis, which is a programmed cell death. This can then lead to increases in insulin resistance because you don't have those beta cells there to help produce insulin. So again, we're looking at, you know, there's so much, there's so many complications. It's not just do this and this will be the result. There is so much more to it. Um, and even with a ketogenic diet, your weight loss will eventually plateau, which then means all your other symptoms will plateau. Um, it's really a long-term liability when it comes to our health. Beautifully said, Jackie. And I think zooming in on type 2 diabetes, we touched on a number of times that it is a lifestyle condition. And the beauty about 
being a lifestyle condition is that if we make modifications to our current lifestyle, there has been instances where we are managing it to a point where it's not really a problem anymore or even completely reversing type 2 diabetes, which is super, super exciting. I guess zooming in on, on some particular components in particular components that contribute to this lifestyle change, I think the role of fiber plays a significant role. And we spoke about the ketogenic diet and how the typical Western ketogenic diet is filled with animal fats and um, animal-based products, cream, eggs, dairy, et cetera, et cetera. But mm -hmm. we see the role that fiber and you're lacking the fiber intake, but we see how important fiber is in the chances of reducing diabetes in the first place and even management and prevention as well. So yeah. I know we were chatting before about if there's a one single nutrient that we'd both agree on, it's like fiber is, is the holy grail. Yeah, totally. And again, you look at those blue zone countries where we have a lot of people living long, basically, they have diets high in fiber well beyond the recommendation here. So I think here for males, um, male adults, it's 35 grams a day. For females, it's about 30 a day or it could be 25 and 30. Um, I really should know that. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're seeing 65 grams plus a day in, you know, those blue zone countries. So when it comes to fiber, why it's so important, it really, fiber is essentially protective, right? Fiber, its action depends on its solubility, its viscosity, and its ability to ferment in the body. So it basically protects the nutrients and it is also packaged with so many nutrients as well. You've got phytochemicals, you've got, um, yeah, minerals, vitamins, all those things that come when we eat whole foods as well as the fiber. It protects the glucose and fructose in an unharmful way and it basically delays the way we break down our food. So people who say, eh, natural sugar is still sugar. You may as well eat a Mars bar if you're going to have a banana. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> Common sense here as well, people. Like it's not the same at all because of fiber. Fiber is protective, right? Um another little analogy <laughs> fiber and all its counterparts is like a bodyguard right and then all the nutrients and phytochemicals and minerals and vitamins that it comes with are like the motorcade you know we see the president's being protected and all that they've got all the defense systems around them that's like what fiber is right stop shaking your head <laughs> how do you think of these <laughs> i don't know i would just like to i think i spend a lot of my time you know what it is, right? I'm a real geek when it comes to nutrition. I constantly read things and then I go and tell my partner and then he's like, I don't get it. And then so I have to like think of analogies. <laughs> I love like, it. It's so good. And it's like, I think that's probably what it is. And it helps. <laughs> again. So, so but basically good. fiber, when we eat fiber, you're generally going to be getting extra nutrients along with it. And it has such a protective role in the way we break down the glucose because it delays it, it slows it down. Um, and it takes it to, you know, our distal gut. And that's when we have all, all of our, you know, beautiful gut benefits when we're eating fiber. So not only is there that direct effect in terms of the breakdown of food when it comes to fiber and blood glucose management, you've also got those secondary effects and the way fiber influences the gut microbiome. We've got to remember that our gut microbiome affects immunoregulation. So our immune system, it affects our metabolism, our gene expression, our hormones, and there's so many downstream positive effects that it has that it can indirectly affect our blood glucose metabolism and our susceptibility to diabetes. Um, fiber feeds our gut bugs 
our gut bugs then produce what's called short-chain fatty acids. So like how we eat food, we break it down and then we poop, right? Think of your short-chain fatty acids as the poop to the gut bugs, <laughs> right? They break down, they spit out these good chemicals and these short-chain fatty acids, in particular butyrate, propionate and acetate, they go and have fantastic effects on the body. Um in fact, what was I reading? I wrote down a fact here is that insulin sensitivity is improved by the gut brain um, gut brain connection, thanks to propionate and butyrate, because they mediate the way um, glucose is synthesized in the body and in the gut epithelium. In other words, our body's ability to use insulin is improved in the gut because of short chain fatty acids, which come back to fiber and our gut bugs eating fiber. So that's how important fiber is. It's not only the direct effect, but it's the indirect effect. And this is just what I've, you know, looked at. There's so, so much more research out there and more to come. So it's yeah. just great. Fiber is the absolute holy grail. And you touched on it before. That's the contributing factor that makes it different from eating a banana to jelly beans. And the fiber component slows down the absorption. And, and yeah, you might see an initial spike in the blood sugar, but it's what happens after that, that in terms of the absorption and, and the extraction of nutrients, that is where the magic happens. So really beautifully exactly said. That. Yeah, it's huge. Another big contributing factor to the prevention and reversal is exercise. I know this is something we both specialize in and, and we know that exercise improves our blood glucose control. So the ability for the insulin cells to detect that there's blood glucose, uh, that there's glucose in the bloodstream. How have you found that exercise has been important in, in the treatment and prevention for you? Yeah, it's huge. And again, it's just another arm. It's another tool in the toolbox that people can use to help reverse or prevent their diabetes. Um, you know, like I said before, it becomes an issue when we have that storage of fat occur inside muscle. We have fat um, storage occur inside our liver. These are all places that we don't want fat to be stored. So exercise helps build more muscle and reduce the fat, right? When we deposit fat into our muscle, it just like plays all kinds of problems. Fat also acts as a hormone. It releases things called adipokines, right? And these can, again, any hormones, hormones are basically chemical regulators in the body. They're communicators that tell you to do things, right? It's like your army officers saying, hey, you go do this, you go do this, you go do that, right? They communicate to things in the body. Sorry, that was another analogy. I just like do it, don't I? <laughs> right. So fat can act as a hormone because of these things. So again, if we're reducing our total fat mass in our body via things such as exercise, which we know can help, we're going to in turn be improving our insulin sensitivity. Yep. Exercise also can actually reduce the lipid droplet size and dynamics. So it can normalize our body's ability to break down fats it shrinks that lipid droplet. And if we can shrink that lipid droplet, we are reversing insulin resistance because the increase in size of that lipid droplet, like I mentioned earlier, is the reason or the cause behind insulin resistance. It's not eating sugar that's causing it. It's the increased growth of that lipid droplet inside the cell that causes the insulin resistance to occur. Right? Um. Yeah, and like you don't use it, you lose it. So your body requires you to burn glucose as a fuel when you're exercising. It's the most efficient form of fuel when we're exercising, the most efficient form of fuel in our day. So when you're exercising, you're going to, again, test your body and test your body's ability to burn through that glucose. 
So you're just pushing it and pushing it to keep doing it, which is a great thing. So many, many ways that exercise can work as a treatment and prevention into diabetes and insulin resistance. Beautifully said, Jackie. And I think like those are the two sort of main contributing factors that if we as consumers or people that are listening to this podcast can really go and adapt that into their lifestyle obviously there's a lot of more a lot more to it and a lot of a personal element that we spoke about before so working one-on-one with a professional is a health professional nutritionist dietitian etc etc to really help along your type 2 diabetes journey and the beauty of it that it is reversible and it's not a life sentence so if we can learn to take control of our health and, and manage this condition properly there's no reason why it can't be reserved Pres- yeah, uh, reversed exactly. not reserved or preserved <laughs> reversed um and that's the thing and as we said earlier like you know diabetes heart disease are the long-term manifestations of what you're doing every day day in day out so if you're wanting to reverse a condition that you've got or you've gotten a disease it's going to take work and you need to be in it for the long run so you need to make sure you've got a team behind you no one expects you to, expects you to do it alone so invest your time in a good health professional in every avenue that you need to be um, and educate yourself. Go out there and learn some things yourself to make sure that you're doing the best you can to get yourself into a healthier state. And the other thing is, right, if you're doing all these unhealthy things day in, day out that end up manifesting as diabetes, you know, in 20, 30, 40 years time, imagine what doing healthy things can do. Unfortunately, it's something that people don't realize because, you know, if we're feeling good, you just kind of ignore it. You just go about your day because, you you know, you're doing things well. It's when we're diseased that we notice something is wrong. But imagine if you did healthy things majority of your time, day in, day out for 20, 30, 40 years, how good you'll be feeling, how optimally your body will be running. You won't be able to really see it as such. It won't manifest itself through many symptoms. You'll just be this happy as Larry fit healthy person running around with your kids and your grandkids and doing all these things that you love that's the way that healthiness is going to manifest itself so that's the other beautiful side if you're going to look at it on a positive angle beautifully said jackie and we spoke about interventions from a lifestyle point of view and how people with this condition can manage it and potentially reverse it with the help of their professional the common treatment for type 2 diabetes and I know for um, insulin resistance in polycystic ovarian syndrome and and some other conditions as well is metformin which is a drug for people at home that have never heard of this before talk to us a little bit about what metformin is yep so metformin look it's a it works right it's a great drug in that perspective we're looking at purely insulin resistance it's been around for clinical use since about the 1950s um sort of the idea of it was discovered a bit earlier on a few decades earlier. Um, So metformin basically reduces the amount of sugar that's released into the blood from the liver. So it works on our metabolic pathways. It interferes with the way that we produce ATP or our energy. Um, It interferes with gluconeogenesis, which is the production of glucose from substances that aren't glucose, i.e. you can convert proteins or amino acids into glucose. That happens via gluconeogenesis. Um, it increases the body's uptake of glucose from the blood. It inhibits the synthesis of fat. So it, you know, downregulates the ability to build fat where we don't want it. It promotes fat oxidation or the breaking down of fat. Um, therefore, it also reduces the lipid storage in places like the liver. It increases the insulin sensitivity. Um, it also helps decrease inflammation. Um, it helps alter gene expression that can, you know, occur with inflammation. 
there are some side effects to it, such as flatulence, diarrhea, nausea. Um, there's also like you can't use it long term in gynecological circumstances. So for people who are on it for PCOS reasons, um, it's not good use, good to use for long term. So these are some negatives to it. And the other thing that I found really funny is that there's many contraindications for its use. So including people with kidney problems, with circulation disorders. These things are really common comorbidities that we see in diabetes and they're contraindicated with the use of metformin. But people, you know, metformin works really well for that insulin sensitivity purpose, but it can be contraindicated for other things. So it's a really funny scale. This is where we need to be careful when we're taking drugs, pharmaceutical drugs in particular, because they generally have an effect. You see so many people, you know, they might take metformin, but then all of a sudden their cholesterol runs high. So then because of that, they need to take a cholesterol drug. But then because of their cholesterol, they're then inhibiting their production of coenzyme Q10. So they need to take a beta blocker because it affects their heart function. You know, you get this cascade and this snowball effect. It takes one drug, ends up taking 10 drugs in 10 years' time because one drug has a side effect, right? Every pharmaceutical drug will have a side effect on your body. Just like every food you eat has a side effect on your body, whether it's positive or negative is the other is the other debate. Um, so we do need to be really careful. Look, it's great from an insulin resistance perspective, but there are flow-on effects from it that we need to be mindful of. And again, you know, diabetes doesn't occur because you weren't taking metformin. You don't have a metformin deficiency. That's why you've got diabetes. Diabetes occurs because of these lifestyle choices that you're making day in, day out for years, for decades. So if you truly, truly, truly want to reverse it, you need to implement the positive lifestyle changes to get you back to that healthy state. Not to say that you can't use metformin and do lifestyle choices at the same time. I'm not neglecting metformin use at all. I think it's necessary in its own application like any drug is, and modern medicine is fantastic. It's saving lives. I'm not knocking that at all. But we need to be careful. We need to be asking questions. We need to be challenging the current system and going, okay, if this is the case, what else can I do to make myself better? Are there lifestyle choices that I can make? Beautifully said. And I think both Jackie and I are, are massive advocates and big Western medicine proponents. It's to the point now where our healthcare system is one of sick care. So we need to start looking at what we've been doing currently. And it's it's really giving us opportunity to get back to the drawing board and, and focus on in, on lifestyle intervention as opposed to medical intervention, because you know our healthcare system is overwhelmed with preventable chronic diseases. So our current way of living is, if we're looking from a health and longevity point of view, it's just not working. Yes, we're living better. Yes, we're living longer, but we're yeah. living not living better for longer. So we can ultimately flick that switch by lifestyle intervention alongside Western medicine and create a, a happy lifestyle where we're living a fruitful life for long. Yeah. Are you surviving or are you living is the real question. Beautiful. You know, um, and you can have both. I don't want people to think that, you know, I can only go down the natural, you know, conventional lifestyle, uh, um, sorry, complementary lifestyle route. That's the only way about it. You can do Western medicine and complementary medicine and work together. You need to be open in your goals with your healthcare professionals. You need to be open in what you want as a treatment. You need to have confidence in what you want 
because it can be scary going to see a doctor and them telling you one thing but you don't want that and trying to stand up for yourself because you know in yourself that you can do something else right you can have the best of both worlds in this scenario but you need to be educated so you need to make some active changes to your, your life and you need to yeah have confidence to stand your ground and find the right healthcare providers for you there will be people out there for you you know you don't just meet someone on the street and say hey you're going to be my friends let's be friends you make sure you know the find the person that you connect with you find the person that you get along with that you can relate to same thing goes for healthcare providers so keep finding keep fighting until you find the right one that's for you beautifully said and i think healthcare is a journey and we all can take control of our own health and jump on our own journey Jackie, that's the yeah. pretty much it for the basis of this conversation. Do you have coming to the end of the podcast? Do you have any last minute Jackie Francis Carcass wisdom before we wrap it up? <laughs> Do I ever? Um, look, no, I think we're good. I just want to, I suppose, the message that I want to get out to this is again, I'm not trying to look personally, I eat a permanently plant based diet. I'm not trying to, again, demonize meat. I'm not trying to hear, be here to demonize fat. That's not what the message is here. The message is to, one, question everything, challenge things. If it doesn't sit right with you, you know, you need to look into it. Two, eat majority healthy whole foods. And when you look at what they are, that's whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, mushrooms, all those beautiful things. Eat majority like that, and then you can have all your little bits on the side. You know, same thing goes for your lifestyle choices, your exercise, doing move your body in the way you love. I'm not here to say that one thing is bad. It's not the case. It's that you need to find that way to live a majority healthy life. And then you'll thank yourself in 20, 30, 40 years. Don't wait till then when you're contemplating cutting your leg off because you have an infected ulcer on the bottom of your foot that you didn't feel because you have nerve disease and it's not healing because you have blood disease thanks to diabetes. You don't want to get yourself to that state and that's what I've seen and it's pretty scary and it's sad from a mental perspective. Change yourself now because what you're doing now will have a long-term effect on your body. Mic drop. <laughs> Beautifully said. Jackie, thank you so much for sharing, giving us an insight into this realm of lifestyle-related disease, in particular type 2 diabetes and, and everything that comes along with this. So thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me. Hope to see you back for number four. <laughs> it's in the pipeline. 98 of the Euphoria Health podcast to a close. What an absolute delight that was. And I hope you guys got something out of that and learned ways that we can have control over our own health and avoid the onset of chronic disease and in particular type 2 diabetes. I just wanted to give you a quick update on things happening in my life while I've got your attention. As some of you may know, I ran my first marathon about three weeks ago, which was a surreal experience and I'm forever humbled by how endurance athletes train and, and operate. Alongside this, I decided to create some extra accountability for myself and achieve a target or strive to achieve a target, raising funds for Halfcut organization. Some of you may or may not have heard this organization before, but 
Essentially, it is an organisation aiming to preserve our wonderful rainforests. And the reason why it is called Half Cut is because over 50% of our world's rainforests have been chopped down due to deforestation for mostly animal agriculture and whether that's feeding them or, or growing growing an environment where, where they can live. So I think this is such an amazing amazing organization that's doing some incredible things so shout out to you jimmy i'm pleased to announce that i was able to raise 940 dollars for the organization and i just want to extend a big thank you to everyone who donated and also everyone who supported me along the journey a big shout out to my coach sean and the first 42k crew who were awesome in getting me prepped for the program. I've got another exciting announcement to make. The founder of Half Cut Organization will be coming on the podcast in the next few weeks, which is awesome. So stay tuned for the release of this one, and I cannot wait to hear your feedback. I hope you have a fantastic week, weekend, Tuesday, Wednesday, wherever you are in the world, whatever day it is, and I'll speak to you soon.